Hello, it's 7th of December 2019 and this is episode 125 of Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? <sighs> a lot. A lot of Star Wars <laughs> stuff has happened. Um, and yeah, we'll touch upon this a little bit more shortly. But um, as with last week, there has just been so much news that we're not even going to attempt to cover the vast, vast majority of what has come out. Because, yeah, it's quite overwhelming now. And I feel like Kirsty and I have reached the same max capacity point where we're like, yeah, just I need the movie. I need to like the movie so I can start like experiencing that and taking that in and absorbing that as the conclusion to the story so yeah how about you Kirsty? how's your week in Star Wars been yeah it's kind of like you are drowning in the fluff as well because they can't say anything with substance for obvious reasons so like <laughs> you're trying to like read all these articles and then get excited about it because it's Star Wars related but then it's like well this doesn't actually tell me anything they're all like masters of saying nothing but it's sounding important yeah Exactly. It's like, oh, it's going to be this like epic masterwork for the ages. And it's like, yeah, but what does it mean? <laughs> and yeah, I really just want to see the movie. And yeah, like I'm still interested in what the actors are saying. And I love the new TV spots that are coming out and stuff. But I just feel like there's not much value in picking apart every single piece of information that's emerging because yeah as Kirsty says there's limited substance to it yeah it's just go easy on yourself guys at the end of the day this is all for fun if you feel like you're you're having a hard time keeping up with everything just don't keep up with everything it's fine just go and watch the mandalorian again yeah exactly so at the end of the day like anything important will be in the movie itself so we can promise you're not missing it (laughs) you're not missing anything it might be more satisfying to go back and watch the interviews after the movies come out because that way you can actually like kind of see what they're talking about when they make these vague allusions to things it's like oh it was that scene or that moment in the character arc um right now it's like well it doesn't mean anything to me <laughs> yeah exactly it's like i saw a tease from one of these outlets um where someone on twitter had asked um will there be an epic kiss in this movie and that question is going to be posed to jj abrams but from experience, we all know that J.J. Abrams will not actually answer that question directly. And I can promise you that if there is an epic kiss, it will be infinitely more satisfying to experience the epic kiss than to hear J.J. talk, dance around the question. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, he's not going to say yes or no. So J.J. <laughs> is like a politician in these interviews. It's, it's frustrating and admirable. <laughs> It's like, yeah. I don't know how you're doing it. You're talking and yet yeah, saying nothing. In a way, it's surprising that more directors don't become politicians. Okay, cool. Um, yep. So I did have a bunch of stories picked out. But to be honest, I think the main thing that we're going to talk about and focus on for news, apart from an amazing story about Alan Dean Foster that will be considered in much greater depth because it deserves it. Um, is the initial report from Richard E. Grant on his reaction to the rise of Skywalker, which was the most delightfully effusive thing I have ever seen. So yeah, Kirsty, would you like to explain what he had to say? Oh, yeah. Uh, I just love this man. (laughs) He's so Um, good. So he posted his reaction in video form on Twitter. 
He says, I've just seen Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker and nothing prepares you for this. I cheered, I shouted, I fist pumped the air, I cried, I stood and cheered. It's absolutely everything you hoped it was going to be. Um, And then in the tweet that he posted, he said, what the film achieves, weaves and resolves is a total emotional meltdown and resurrection of the spirit. Which is (laughs) beautiful poetry. Yeah. And the best thing that we can't capture here, because we do not possess the wonderful, wonderful voice of Richard E. Grant, but he just has the most amazing like intonation in how he delivers things as well. It's like he has these very deliberate pauses. So he's like, I cheered, I shouted, I fist pumped the air. You know, he's really like performing his he is an actor. reaction video. Yes, exactly. It is a fantastic performance. And I don't mean to imply falsehood. No. In that description, because it does also seem very sincere, which is quite a miracle and a testament to Richard E. Grant's talent and awesomeness as a person. And yeah, I just love him. And I think he's super cool. And I really wish he would just do all the promo because, like, Daisy, Oscar, and John, bless them, they're doing a good job, but you can tell they're worn down now. They've been doing promo for so long, and I think they just want to go home and sleep. Yeah, that's fair. And I think you know, Richard E. Grant, he, he is so excited to be in Star Wars, but like you say, it's his first one, so he's, like, fresh. Um, he was talking at the press conference about the influences on the first Star Wars that he he watched when he was in acting school um referencing the bible greek mythology like you can tell that he's really pumped to be in this movie yeah um it's just lovely to see and i'm very excited to see what role pride plays i feel like it's gonna be kind of interesting to see him and hux play off each other yep and kylo as well because i feel like yeah, like if Hux and Kylo are boys fighting in a playground, because they're basically peers, so that's why I'm making that comparison, then is Pride going to be like the headmaster? Is that going to be the vibe, you know? And I know Kylo is technically speaking the supreme, the supreme leader, so he should be top dog. But yeah, I'd be intimidated by Richard E. Grant in villain mode. So I like to think Kylo would. Yeah, they're going to have a different presence. Um, I mean, Richard E. Grant was saying that he took inspiration from... Peter Cushing as Tarkin for the role and you can tell so it'll be just a different vibe yep very different from Hux because Hux wasn't really Tarkin yeah so I'm very excited to see what they do with the character to be honest and how he's used We, I like proper boo hiss villains in my stars essentially <laughs> and yeah I feel like apart from Snoke we haven't really got that yet well Palpatine's back yeah, exactly. We're going to get that in Palpatine. So I, I just find Hux like, alternately funny and sad. I don't find him boohiss, really. Yeah, so then besides that, there have been a bunch of magazine articles and photo shoots and interviews, like endless coverage. And anyone who's interested in keeping up with everything should follow Slimo on Twitter because she's been a real hero, essentially, in keeping up with everything. It's very impressive. But... Yeah, my primary instinct is I'm not sure how much value there is in us discussing any of this because, yeah, it's all out of context and vague. So would you like to just go into the Alan Dean Foster treatment for episode nine, Kirsty? I really, really would. <laughs> okay, let's do it. It's definitely the aspect of this, like, it's the aspect of this episode I'm most excited to talk about, to be honest. So 
to give people context, um, there was a article published in Sci-Fi magazine, I think, and it basically got the input from several Legends era Star Wars writers on how they would do Episode Nine, basically, and what their predictions are for the story. And essentially what happened is Alan Dean Foster could not be interviewed for this article. He wasn't available for some reason. But he had already, in 2018, written a fan treatment for episode 9 based on The Last Jedi. And I went on his website and read it, so I was so fascinated by this. And he like prefaces it by saying that it was written to both further the story and correct some of the mistakes that had been made in The Last Jedi. <gasps> he said that! Something like that, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, like it's quite something. Bold. Uh, let me actually bring that up because I don't want to misquote him. <laughs> yep, so okay, to give a sense of how Alan Dean Foster per- perceives this, he adds this note at the end of his treatment. This story follows upon the events of episode 8, expanding upon them, correcting certain errors, and filling in plot holes and without con- and without contradicting anything that appeared in the previous film that which could not be corrected is passed over so that's his artistic vision and his starting point essentially i've got to say i'm truly shocked that alan dean foster wasn't a fan of the last jedi <laughs> <laughs> like honestly I know people have strong feelings about the Force Awakens novelization, but for me, it's one of the most entertaining novelizations. And it's not because it's good, but it's because it's just written in such a labyrinthine fashion that I find it fascinating as an artifact, which is not good practice, but I enjoy it. So. Yeah. The more I read about Alan Dean Foster and his ideas, and like after reading Splinter of the Mind's Eye this summer and stuff, I'm just like amazed that this man was even chosen to write the Force Awakens novelization. Yeah. I kind of feel like it was a pure nostalgia play, to be honest. Yeah, maybe because he did write the first ever Star Wars book. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know. I just don't quite understand. Uh... Don't understand. <laughs> Yeah, so it, this is like getting the splinter of the mind's eye of the sequel trilogy. So yeah. it's a special time, ladies and gents. We're, uh, this is the episode nine that we deserve, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, to give a bit of further context, this is what Sci-Fi Wire, which is the actual name of the publication, apologies, has to say about setting up what what this is, essentially. Sci-Fi Wire approached a group of distinguished individuals who are not just fans of Star Wars. They have also contributed to the overall narrative and major works published over the last 42 years that are considered either officially, quasi, or formally canonical. These creative people shared what they believe will, could or should happen in episode 9 the rise of skywalker or explained why they preferred not to engage in any pre-release speculation alan dean foster wrote the novelization of the original star wars writing as george lucas (laughs) along with the 1978 sequel novel splinter of the mind's eye listen to our episode on that 2002's the approaching storm the lead-in to attack the clones we should totally read that kirsty oh yeah i didn't even know about that no nor did i yeah (laughs) Fake EDF fan. (laughs) We're learning. Um, And the novelization of 2015's The Force Awakens. Foster was not available for an interview. Boo. 
but through his agent he granted consent for this article to summarise key sections for movie treatment for episode 9 that he wrote for fun and posted on his website on May the 1st 2018. Okay, so... We will go into the various aspects of this treatment, but overall, what's your reaction to the Alan Dean Foster treatment of Star Wars Episode Nine, Kirsty? That this is more effective marketing for Episode Nine than any of the other press or promotion they're doing, because <laughs> no matter what we get in the movie, it's going to be better than this. <laughs> yes, it's so, so true. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. No, it's pretty foolproof, to be honest. There's no losing with this. It's quite impressive. Um, yeah, so I was just overjoyed when I saw this. And it's also better by juxtaposition because the other aspects of this article, they are just like answers to interview questions, you know, and they're fine, but it's literally just people mostly saying stuff like, no, Kylo Ren shouldn't be redeemed. He killed Han Solo and that makes him unforgivable. You, you know, which is fine, but once you've read it four times, it gets a bit dull. Whereas Alan Dean Foster has like a full fleshed plot and all these like <laughs> ideas springing out of him, and like, yeah, we're going to take the piss out of it, but I genuinely think there's something beautiful and admirable oh, in the definitely. fact that he puts so much care into this and thought about it so deeply. So, seriously, like, I hope to God Alan Dean Foster never listens to this, but if he were to, respect. You know, because I appreciate the passion, even though I think the ideas are kind of silly. You committed to them, you know, and you went places. And I like that. I appreciate creative risks. And this treatment, it represents a big creative risk. Yeah, it's interesting because it either tells me that he's such a huge fan of Star Wars that he was writing fanfic like the rest of us because he's a genuine fan. That's great. Yeah. Or it's that he hates the sequel trilogy so much and is disappointed (laughs) with where things are going. So kind of felt that he had to rectify, which to be fair is what a lot of fan fiction does too. You know, that's that's the power of transformative fandom. Yep. Uh, it's just funny to think about which one it is that I, I'm guessing it's the latter. I don't know. I, I can't say I respect it because I think some parts of it are so clearly unashamedly sexist. But yeah, it was it was hearkening back to Splinter of the Mind's Eye in, in big ways for me for that reason, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so let's get into it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so would you like to read the first bit, oh, Kirsty, yes. <laughs> on the truth about Ray? <laughs> see if I can get through it without laughing. Okay, yeah, you've got to take it very seriously, okay? Alan Dean Foster did, you can too. I know this isn't what happened, but when I was reading the article, I was picturing, like you say, the other, the other authors were right, talking about their theories and everything, and then Alan Dean Foster, the way it's written in the article it just goes straight into the story you can picture him answering with like well this is what happens (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's lovely isn't it it's great late in the story treatment kylo ren attacks ray with his lightsaber ren's blow cuts the upper right side of her scalp she falls to the floor gasping then foster indicates that the upper right side of her head is cut away and cauterized amid the exposed bone a small freeform transparency fills part of her head melding sinuously with her brain. Behind the transparency, lights flash and twinkle. Reaching up, Ray touches the exposed area and draws back her hand in shock. The revelation is as unexpected to her as it is to us. Kylo Ren voices his disgust. Droid. Part droid. No wonder you mastered the use of the Force so quickly. No wonder you learn so quickly. Hybrid. 
monster. Locked in battle with Kylo Ren, Rey's memories come flooding back to her. Foster writes, her parents, junk dealers with an infant, an infant with a deformed skull. They take her to a renegade surgeon on Jakku. There is one possible operation, but it's experimental and highly dangerous. It could kill her. Her parents agree to it. Ray is operated on. The shape of her head is made normal, but with part droid componentry inside to help keep her alive. Natural skin and hair grow swiftly over the surgical opening. Her parents can't handle her. They abandon her as a young girl, paying what they can to Uncle Plut to look after her. He abandons her as a child, but she turns scavenger and somehow survives. Okay, so this raises a lot of questions. <laughs> like, mainly, my, like, my first question is Kylo saying, no wonder you learn so quickly. So, like, a droid's known to have great affinity of the Force. That, <laughs> that is my first question of many, because there are many, many questions associated with this. It's just, wow. It's a lot, isn't it, Kirsty? It, it's a lot. It's like, okay, so... Just the idea in the first place of there having to be an explanation for why Ray is so powerful. Ugh, I'm so tired of this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like you say, the idea that droids are somehow more attuned with the Force than humans, that's new. <laughs> Have we seen Force-sensitive droids aside from... Is, like, um, is General Grievous Force-sensitive? or No, he's just been <laughs> trained in the Jedi arts, right? I think so, yeah. I'm, I'm not aware of any Force-sensitive droids. He was, like, part human. Right, but yeah. that aside... Just... There was an organic aspect to him, yeah. So he wasn't pure machine. Or, like, the idea of Darth Vader becoming more Force-sensitive because he becomes more machine than man. It's like, this is not... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I can only assume that's what he's going for. That sort of whole like Vader thing and like the melding between an organic body and a mechanical one. Would Kylo Ren be disgusted by that? He loves Vader. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, it, it it just feels completely bizarre, doesn't it? Especially when his previous responses to Rey have always been filled with this wonder and awe and an admiration, you know, for her power. Like... We've never seen Kylo have any like prejudice against droids. Not that I'm aware of. Uh, it's not well, the Mandalorian. Maybe Alan Dean Foster is a fan of Last Shot by Daniel Jose Older. And oh, toddler yes. Ben Solo was almost killed by a droid in that book. So, oh my god, yeah, maybe you're this right. is his genius way of weaving the canon together. Oh my god, that's beautiful. <laughs> wow, it's all making sense. So much sense. <laughs> That's, See, he's thought yeah. it through. <laughs> oh my god, I love you, Alan. I love you so much. It's just so... It does unfortunately remind me a lot of how he wrote the whole Luke and Leia dynamic in The Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which we talked about a lot on that episode. I can't remember what number it was, but... Um, just there have to be like explanations for why Luke is more powerful than Leia, and he's a better swimmer, even though he grew up on Tatooine and... <laughs> That Leia's a princess who grew up on Alderaan and she can't do anything. <laughs> She's an idiot. She doesn't have the force. Yeah. No, it's ridiculous. And another key aspect of this treatment in relation to Rey and who she is, what is her parents' problem, you know, after this surgery? Yeah, so it literally just goes from the sentence natural skin and hair grow swiftly over the surgical opening and then 
her parents can't handle her. So you can't handle a child who's had surgery? Like, what? Is it? Yeah. Is that maybe there's something missing here in the implication is they can't handle her because she's so strong with the force? Yeah. That's not relevant to all of this shit about, like, it's kind of gross, like, deformed skull, but thankfully she can be made to look normal. It's like, oh, thank God she doesn't have a physical disability. <laughs> Heaven forbid. <laughs> That's like the worst possible outcome for a young woman. Um, yeah, it's really bad. And I actually just checked the original treatment and how that's worded. And it's worded in exactly the same way as it is in the sci-fi wire article. So yeah, apparently it is just her parents being ableist and not being able to handle a child who's had surgery. So yeah, it's pretty shitty. Um, and yeah, it just also speaks to that bizarre detachment from like normal and relatable emotional progression that, yeah, you'd just expect and want in fiction so yeah interesting yeah it's uh it's interesting alan <laughs> well take your ideas on board and i also love that he's called alan because whenever you say alan it just makes you think of alan partridge and <laughs> i can kind of like think of alan dean foster as sort of like a quasi alan partridge type figure which just makes it all so much better <laughs> I just or like, like imagining like Alan Dean Foster trying to pitch this to Kathleen Kennedy. It's quite wonderful. Well, I was thinking about Kathleen Kennedy pitching these ideas to Alan Horn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Alan. Oh my god. So many Alans. <laughs> oh, good idea you've got there. <laughs> oh my god, it's amazing. Right, let's move on to the next part of the Alan Dean Foster treatment, which is about the redemption of Kylo Ren. So I'll read this bit. No redemption here. If in Foster's treatment, Kylo Ren remains conflicted, but prone to letting the darkness get the best of him. He doesn't want to kill Rey, but he feels he must, and even apologises to her as he tries to land a killing blow. How pliant. But once he discovers that she's part droid, all sympathy, all potential affection, vanishes from him in an instant. I think your theory about the trauma from the early childhood experience in Last Shot is gaining ground, Kirsty. Shaken by her recovered memories, Rey relaxes and shuts off her sabre. Kylo Ren holds off, still conflicted, but finally decides that he has to kill her, to save her from herself, to purify the Force, for his own sake. She falls backward, her eyes closing in resignation and exhaustion, and he moves in, right into her reactivated lightsaber as her eyes snap open, startled run through, and as conflicted as ever, Ren dies in front of her, killed in the same way he killed his father. Yeah, see what you did there? <laughs> Alan. Make him pay! It's um interesting. And again, the emotional stuff. The emotional stuff is following a very interesting and confusing track in this. Again, the motive for killing Ray. Like, why is Ray this absolute horror of a creation you know why will killing ray purify the force i just don't get it i don't get it either because throughout star wars you know luke has a robotic hand uh Rhea has robotic prosthetic lungs medical convention in star wars it seems like for people to have like droid implants <laughs> Maybe it's different because it's her brain and it's somehow affecting like her sense of humanity, but like there's something real icky here. 
it, it feels almost medieval. It is. Kind of. It's like, ooh, the man with the false leg is evil. To purify the force. Like she's somehow an, like an abomination or something. Gross. Yeah, it's like chill, guys. What's up with you? Hmm. And the idea that there was all of this emotion and then, oh, she's revealed to be a droid, so I can kill her easy, no problem. It's like, <laughs> you've just done away with all of the tension there. Yeah, and the thing is, it's not like she's even fully droid. You know, like if he chopped her head off and it just revealed all this circuitry and she was like an android all along, I could kind of understand more. But when it's literally a human girl who just had this like piece of surgery to correct a medical condition. What what the fuck is your problem? Yeah, <laughs> just... I don't think Alan Dean Foster likes Ray very much. <laughs> yeah. He can't, right? Like, what gets me is that, like, was he writing the Force Awakens novelization, working under the assumption that something like this, maybe not exactly this, but some explanation to this degree would come out in the future of the story like oh this is why Rey is the way she is like there has to be something it can't just be that she's this lonely isolated girl with hidden powers it's that there's got to be something sinister at work why would a girl be so powerful god help us all god help us all (laughs) it's frightening these witches (laughs) their witchcraft their evil powerful ways burn the witch burn the witch Okay, cool. So then we're going to get into how the treatment like um, c- deals with the character of Luke Skywalker. So would you like to read this bit, Kirsty? In the treatment, Luke Skywalker returns to help Rey defeat the villains, but not as a force ghost. He's back for real, in the flesh. Luke acknowledges that he vanished at the end of The Last Jedi, but he did not actually die. As he describes it, he passed from this plane of existence, yes, doesn't mean I pass to the other. (laughs) Luke explains that to avoid detection from his force-wielding enemies, he had to go away for a while to that space in between. It's a quiet place. The force allows it. Oh, how convenient. He smiles and adds, I was tired. I needed a rest anyway. Once the big battle is over and Rey and Luke emerge triumphant, Luke weakens, smiles tiredly, and makes a final request of Rey. Take care of the galaxy. He then whispers, Aunt Baru. (laughs) And this time, he truly does die. No in-between existence this time. Nor does he fade away. (laughs) Baru. Oh my god. I mean, I love me some Baru, but for those to be Luke Skywalker's (laughs) last ever words... It's like, is that the real rosebud of Star Wars and <laughs> Alan Dean Foster's vision? Aunt Beru is the key to all this. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like Luke never seemed especially close to her. Like in the movie, to just to be clear, so I know it's been expanded upon more in the like books and other material, but it wasn't like this depiction of this deep attachment to this boy and his mother figure, between this boy and his mother figure. It was just she was Aunt Baru who got the milk, you know? I don't know. I I don't know. I, I think it's implied that they like strongly care for each other and you know, she's taken care of him his whole life. She yeah. loves him very much. But like in terms of I don't understand why he would be thinking of her at this time. Is it because um that ties it back in with episode four, is that why? I would imagine so. 
I can't see any other reason is why you do this. Is he seeing Aunt Beru as he dies? Is that... It doesn't make any sense for it to be her. Yeah, it's kind of suggesting that she's like his emotional anchor, isn't it? Like that she is the person that he cares about the most. Hmm. And yeah, like in a way, I suppose there is something quite nice about that because she was basically his mother. She's the woman who raised him since he was an infant. And yeah, like I guess foster mother, surrogate mother, because yes, Padme was the biological mother, but she tragically died. She didn't actually get to raise her child. So, yeah. I'm not against the idea as, like, an idea, because, as I said, I love Aunt Beru, and I would, you know, I would like more of an acknowledgement of these mother figures in canon, because I actually don't expect the Rise of Skywalker to do an awful lot there. Um, but just the way that he, he he's written this, it's like, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> It, it just becomes quite hilarious, and, doesn't it? Yeah. Also, like, trying to retcon The Last Jedi, but also this idea where he's, like, doing it respectfully. It's like, yes, those events did happen, but it's not actually what you think it means. He just went to this middle place and he was safe and cosy in the Force until he decided to come back. <laughs> yeah, so Luke just basically checked out and then, like, showed up really again tired. at the last moment. <laughs> You know when you get too tired, Ray, you just need to like switch off and fade away for a bit and then come back to life conveniently. It does sound like a fantasy that an older man who's like in retirement would have, you know, about just being able to slip away, like put on the slippers and just snooze for a bit and then come back at the important point to get all the glory. You know? Yeah, because I, I do think that some people after The Last Jedi were still holding out hope that Luke would somehow be alive. And I, I do think we're going to get to see him as a force ghost. You know, we know Mark Hamill's going to be in the movie, but yeah, I don't think he's alive anymore, guys. <laughs> yeah, there's this weird obsession, isn't there, with resurrecting Luke and making him like this critical figure, even though he's gone. I understand it. It's hard to let go of your heroes, but yeah, no, exactly. So I guess it would be like us dealing with the treatment of Ray in a trilogy to come in thirty years you know and I can't speak to how I'd respond to that you know I'd probably have strong opinions and strong emotions but yeah it's just a shame so it reminds me that in The Last Jedi I felt like that was a really good and appropriate send-off and climax to Luke's story but yeah for a lot of people they clearly didn't quite feel satisfied by that so that's why there's this desire for even more as Alan Dean Foster suggests so, yeah, it's a shame. Yeah. I hope that whatever they do in The Rise of Skywalker, to be fair, kind of puts those concerns at ease. And I, I think it will, because if we do see Luke as a Force ghost and he's moved on from, you know, that horrible ethical dilemma he had at the flashbacks of The Last Jedi and how he was so ashamed and uncertain and depressed. And then he moves on from that and does find that peace at the end. And then we're going to see him in episode nine. That's really great because we'll we'll have seen that stuff resolved and him trying to make amends. Like I I I do think it's gonna it's gonna help. Yes, definitely. Just, so, just yeah. not in this way. <laughs> yeah, um, we're not gonna get that Aunt Baru sign off from Luke, unfortunately. Or at least I'd be surprised. You never know. JJ might give it to us. Okay, so the next part is about Palpatine, which I will read. Um. Since the treatment was written well before the revelation that Emperor Palpatine would return in The Rise of Skywalker, Foster's top-level villain is none other than Supreme Leader Snoke, 
who is brought back in a manner very close to how Veitch resurrected Palpatine in Dark Empire. Cloning! Foster writes, The Clone Wars, when Imperial scientists got very good at producing clones. A small, brilliant segment perfected the technology. Absolute duplication of the original, down to the last neural connection, which allowed for duplication of knowledge, memories, everything. Perfect cloning. Did Kylo Ren really think Snoke would allow him to destroy everything he had worked for? First law of military strategy. Always have a reserve in, in waiting. How many clones of him are there? Ren wonders. Snoke's grin now turns into an evil grimace. Wouldn't you like to know? <laughs> <laughs> the question's answered later when Luke single-handedly takes on a literal army of Snoke clones, all of them wielding lightsabers. To be fair, I would like to see this. <laughs> not in a movie. Just to clarify, like I do not want this in episode 9 in any form, but if there was like a fan movie of this, I would enjoy it. Cause... Yeah. This literally sounds like a Mike Zero video, ca- video thumbnail brought to life. And of course, it has to be Luke. It can't be Ray. Luke's the real hero, you know. (laughs) Luke has to do all the manly stuff, like fighting and dispatching all the bad guys. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, it's just quite something, isn't it? What I do appreciate that Alan Dean Foster... Well, I I don't agree with his reading of Kylo Ren, obviously. But at least he's like oh, we do need that big bad, though, and they did away with Snoke, so we need to bring him back in some form. Yeah. Because, obviously, J.J. Abrams decided that, too. He just decided to bring back Palpatine instead of Snoke, so... Yeah. No, he's thinking along the right lines, essentially. Yeah. It's like the recognition that, yes, Kylo Ren is a villain, but he can't be the villain. Yeah. Exactly. And even though it doesn't track too well emotionally... There are still like attempts made to give Kylo some complexity in this treatment, which, yeah, credit where credit's due and all that, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, okay, awesome. And then the last bit is about Rey's destiny and the future of the Jedi. Um, yeah, would you like to read out this final bit, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. The treatment ends on a note of uncertainty, with Rey weeping over the death of Luke and no clear indication of what she'll do next, aside from striving to live up to his example. Holding back her sobs, Ray gently closes Luke's eyes. C-3PO is there to comfort her. Reaching up, he touches her exposed skull portion. <laughs> Has anyone told her lately how really beautiful she is? She sniffs, then starts to laugh softly. Then her expression changes as she sees Finn, battered but alive, limping out of the smoking Imperial complex. He comes towards her and she rises to meet him. C-3PO shakes his head dolefully. Organics. I'll never understand them. We pull back as Finn hurries to embrace Rey, with C-3PO behind them, and Luke sitting peacefully, smiling beneath the tree. Oh, Great. <laughs> so you want Rey mourning Luke Skywalker's death for the second time? But this time it has to be more effusive because just looking sad and pensive isn't enough. She has to be weeping like a proper Victorian heroine would. Mm. And it's 3PO <laughs> consoling her by telling her how beautiful she is. Ugh. Well, that's what every woman wants, to be told she's beautiful, Kirsty. So that's clearly the best possible thing he could say under the circumstances. Also just, 
even the uh, the concept that C-3PO would be confused by her and Finn like running towards each other and hugging. Yeah. Like he's he spends his time around humans. He's seen human behavior like <laughs> just don't know why that would be so strange. <laughs> yeah, like this whole thing it's just very bizarre. And I think I said on Twitter that this whole thing, this whole concept for a story and the stuff that's going on with it emotionally and with the characters, you can tell it's written in a very unique fashion that is very specifically tied to a style of writing science fiction from the 1970s, which is Alan Dean Foster's specialism. And I really just feel like he's never changed, basically. No. I feel like he has a style that he developed in the 1970s when he wrote like the original novelization of Star Wars and Splinter of the Mind's Eye. And he's just stuck to that. And he's still got that mindset for storytelling and how he crafts his prose and how he approaches his characters. And yeah, he's just been steady as anything. And yeah, like the rise of feminism and like increasing like sophistication in emotion especially in speculative fiction like sci-fi and fantasy it's all just completely passed him by and he's quite cheerfully still writing about like armies of snow clones and yeah all this other stuff and yeah so that's why i can admire it it's not a story i would ever want to see filmed but there is something kind of pure about it yeah it's special that we have this as offensive it, as it is i mean it's kind of like how i feel about spencer of the mind's eye it's like it's interesting in its own right i'm just glad that it's not canon yeah no exactly it's like yeah this isn't the vision of star wars that i want to be actual star wars but as some sort of weird alternate universe take that i can just happily put in a little box and pull out when i want to smile then yeah i'm totally cool with that yeah, and it makes us appreciate what we do have in the sequel trilogy. So, thanks, Alan. Yeah, no, thanks, Alan. Like, I really needed this right now because it's like, oh man, do we really want to torture ourselves by going through these like cryptic comments about what is and isn't happening in this movie? Or do we want to talk about Alan Dean Foster's fan fiction? And the answer was clear for both of us. Basically. Exactly. Okay, awesome. Any like remaining comments? Or should we move on to The Mandalorian? I think we should move on. Cool. So, The Mandalorian. Where would you like to begin with this, Kirsty? What were your overall thoughts? Um, well, first I guess we should say that this is episode 5. It was written and directed by Dave Filoni. I suppose my general thoughts are that I enjoyed it. There was stuff that I enjoyed in there, but it's definitely not my favourite episode. Mm. And I think... And I I think that this is by design that after the very strong episodes 1 to 3 arc of obviously Mando getting the job, um, discovering the child and taking him and then going back for him and escaping. There is a bit of a lull with episodes four and five. I've seen some comments that people perceive them as filler. And I, I understand that to a degree in terms of it being like slower and kind of taking stock. It's like a, a lull in the, it's away from that main plot and then I, there's a sense that we'll go back to that at a later date right yeah um but i think they are enjoyable on their own terms and there's a lot of stuff in there um mm-hmm. 
I'm just kind of looking forward to getting back to like what happens with Werner Herzog and all of that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that's what happens with episode six or if it's going to go out a bit longer. Um, and I guess in general, this episode to me felt as closest as we've had so far in The Mandalorian to a piece of Star Wars animation. And I think that probably is down to it being so heavily Filoni. Yeah, in in the same sense that I felt with episode one, where I felt like you could tell that Dave Filoni wasn't yet super confident with live action uh, like as a director, I got the same vibe from this, especially in terms of the performances and stuff. Some of it felt a bit stilted to me. Um, so it, to an extent, it was kind of charming. Like I'm going to be rubbish with names for this episode, so I've had a lot on this weekend, so I haven't quite been able to absorb it. But the um, young bounty hunter that the Mandalorian sort of takes under his wing, mm. um, that character, his acting reminded me of Hayden Christensen from the prequels. Oh, I saw other people saying that, yeah. Okay, cool. I'm glad it wasn't just me. Um, and yeah, it just felt oddly stilted. And I was like, wow, like... Dave Filoni took things from George Lucas that are unexpected, including a certain style when it comes to directing actors, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Which might be a bit unfair, but... Like yeah. you, I found it quite charming. Uh, I don't, I'm don't. i sure not everyone feels that way, but I'm trying to just take whatever Star Wars we get on its terms and, like, picking out the things that I do enjoy and, like, enjoying them for what they are. So, yeah. Like, I hope I don't offend anyone, but this this episode was giving me the strong holiday special vibes. That, to me, is not a bad thing, because I enjoy yeah. the holiday special for what it is. Yeah. So, you know, just Star Wars just sometimes fears that way. It's fine. Um, yeah. So it was giving me, like, the strong 80s vibes. Like, that dude had an earring. Uh, Amy Sedaris had an 80s perm. It was like they were kind of committing to the aesthetic of where that was coming from. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, that perm was... If that character had been in the holiday special, you would have completely accepted it. There was nothing modern about how that character looked, basically. She, yeah, came from a past decade. Yeah, and I loved it because, to me, I was like, oh, this is like... She's Akmina's best friend. She's the best babysitter in the galaxy. Like, I, I, it could have been out of the holiday special. It like felt like world building for that Star Wars universe. Um, and just in general, I think the casting for the show can be wild. <laughs> like, I did not expect to see Amy Sedaris in Star Wars. Yeah, what's she famous for? I've never come across. She's her a an American comedian. She's been in like Strangers of Candy. Uh, yeah, she's in all sorts of things. Okay, cool. You know, I quite liked her. Again, like it was sort of like corny, but yeah, in that holiday special way where I could kind of appreciate it. And I liked that little dynamic she had going on with the baby. I thought it was quite sweet. Yeah. Um. And yeah, part of me was like, I would have preferred it if we stayed with her looking after the baby, to be honest. I feel like that would have been more engaging and charming. And that feels mean. But yeah, I'm just not sure what else was going on of interest in the rest of this episode. Well, okay. So there's an interesting conversation going on here because like, I saw some people at Lucasfilm kind of responding to the fan perception that it's quote-unquote filler with mm -hmm. the idea of oh well you know not everything has to be plot driven some things can be character driven which I think is true yeah but I don't think a lot of this episode is character driven I don't know what else we learned about the Mandalorian in this episode yeah 
No, that's pretty much how I feel. Well, and this was in line with what I've actually understood The Mandalorian to be. One moment, which I actually do think, uh, in some eyes, could redeem this entire episode, or it was just the thing that really stood out to me that, I like, on this term alone, I can just enjoy this episode and be thankful that it exists. Because The Mandalorian respects the Tusken Raiders as the native people that they are. Guys, this is 42 years in the making. As far as I'm aware, we do not have a single piece of Star Wars canon that has people asking permission to be on Tusken Raider land, speaking with them like they're equals, and negotiating. Like, justice for the Tuscans, guys. That's huge. Yeah. And that actually also felt like growth to me from the the second episode, where Mandalorian does not play very nicely with the Jawas, Mm. and he relies on Nick Nolte, who I'm still going to call Nick Nolte, sorry. Um, to sort of like handle it because he's just completely without grace and he That's has no really diplomacy. So yeah, in a way that showed an evolution on his part. But I kind of wish we'd seen more of a journey because it's not like you really see him come to respect the qualities of the Jawas in the second episode of the course of it. You know, he's like, oh, how weird. So yeah, I think more could have been done, but I do think that was what was going on in terms of contrasting those two encounters. Hmm. Mando's a good woke boy. <laughs> yes. He learned his lesson and now he applies it. It's very good. And I, I did, I have to say, I love the shots of them riding across the dunes on their speeders. Yeah. That is the just, speeders were really cool. I liked yeah, that. That's just so Star Wars to me. Um, the only... Okay. In terms of what I didn't love about this episode... I felt like there were way too many references to other things in Star Wars. Yeah. It was the most blatantly fanservice-y episode, yeah, to be honest. And I think that says lots is already a pretty clearly fanservice-y show. Yeah. I just wondered, like, who who is that for at this point? Because the success of the show, the success of Baby Yoda, has brought so many new people to this. So... Are they getting anything out of all of those references? Like, you know, even just like those throwaway lines, like, she's no good to me dead. She has the high ground. It's like, okay, we get it. But yeah. are they just going right over some people's heads? Because they must be. Because they, they do it in like this, like I say, throwaway aspect. But obviously to us, we recognize the lines. But if you don't, it's just regular dialogue. So is there really much of a purpose to that? Mm. I don't like it when Star Wars gets too self-referential and I know Star Wars has always been that way the whole like oh I have a bad feeling about this it's like yeah. it's just constantly like oh I see what you did there so I feel like it's the sort of thing where you could get away with having one reused line in the episode but I lost count basically of how many lines were from other Star Wars material um, and yeah it was just too much I think yeah, and that was on top of us returning to Tatooine, to the cantina, having pit droids, like mentioning Beggar's Canyon, all that stuff. It's like, oh my god, it was just like non-stop. Yeah, and it's the sort of show where it's particularly important that it demonstrates that it is doing new stuff and offering something different. Because, yeah, the lead character is fundamentally in old design and lots of the world building is inherently nostalgic which I feel is one of the things the sequel trilogy has done really well because so much of that is new stuff in terms of getting new worlds and new aliens. And of course there are new worlds and new aliens in The Mandalorian, but 
like the planet where the Mandalorian starts out on, for example, it looks exactly like Tatooine, even though it isn't actually Tatooine, you know? And yeah, I think they need to go a bit more wild with what they're going for in terms of this is a big galaxy with lots of different places and environments and stuff. Even the holiday special took us to Kashyyyk. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry, exactly. Gonna, I don't know if I should stop mentioning the holiday special. <laughs> no, no, no. It's perfectly valid. The holiday special is beautiful. Don't be ashamed of mentioning it. I just can't help but bring it up because there's so much here that reminds me of it. Mm. Like, it's yeah. just... Yeah. I don't know. A lot of those yeah. vibes. No, I totally see it. Pelly was a complete holiday special character. Did you say you had um, headcanons about her? Yeah, I just, like, because I don't know if it fits in time-wise, but I do think that she and Akmina would be good friends, or even yeah. a couple, because we know mm. that Akmina is, is queer, canonically. Yep. Yeah, and Pelly was giving me those vibes, so why not? That's my new ship. I'd like Pelly to have friends beyond the pit droids. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Definitely. laughs> everyone needs friends beyond the pit droids. <laughs> oh yeah. my god. But yeah, no, um, she's good. And she I like I did appreciate how she pointed out the dumbness of um the Mandalorian just leaving the baby like that. Seriously, and... what is he doing? <laughs> so oh, this will be fine. It's he like, keeps no, doing it. Will it. Not. You know, again, like that's something else that is like, is there gonna be growth here? Because he's obviously come to like care for Yoda a lot. But mm. in terms of learning how to actually take care of him, it's like you can't just leave him on the ship by himself. <laughs> I think someone just needs to buy him like a parenting manual. <laughs> uh, maybe that's part of the journey. Um, yeah. Okay, so do you want to talk about Fennec? Fennec, yeah. I was a bit disappointed. Like, I did like Mingna when, and I felt like she did a good job in the in the role, like with what it was essentially. So I felt some of the writing was a bit. Uh, um. But yeah, like I was really disappointed that she was killed at the end of this episode. Do you think she's dead dead? Or do you think there's a chance she's coming back based on how it ended? I think there's a chance that she's coming back based on that last scene. Um, mm. But I'm preparing myself to be disappointed because Star Wars does not have a great track record with women of colour. You know, we, yeah. we, we can just say that like it's true. Um, yeah, it's unfortunate because it obviously the sh- the scene where he does shoot her it's shocking and it's supposed to be and i would i was kind of distracted for the for the few minutes after that because i was like i can't believe they just killed her already like we only just got her and she was so great yeah um, i was a bit baffled especially so i felt like she'd been hyped up quite a bit in advance so that's why when they showed that last scene i was like oh okay maybe it's not over yeah um, and then obviously there's the whole question of who that is coming up to her. Mm. Yeah, lots of people are speculating it's Boba Fett, aren't they? I've seen people saying it's Boba Fett because of the spurs on the shoes. That's that's what it made me think, which would be crazy. Yeah, I don't pay like that much attention to um, footwear in the galaxy far, far away. But yeah, like it does seem like an, an obvious sign if it is the same, so... Well, yeah. it just made me think, like, okay, it would have been so easy, given all of the other, you know, wink-wink uh, references to everything else on Tatooine it, during this episode. The fact that we didn't get a mention of Boba Fett, who we know is on Tatooine and got swallowed up by the Salak, like, uh, maybe this is why. Yeah. I mean, 
what would you think about Boba Fett being in The Mandalorian? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that's a bad reaction. Um, but yeah, like I just don't care about that character that much, to be honest. I know he's a real fan favourite, but to me he's just a guy who stands in corners looking badass, you know, like I'm a bounty hunter. Um, and yeah, I know there's more about him in the Clone Wars, and I know that we have some backstory for him in the prequels, but none of that stuff makes me automatically feel that invested in him. So it might be cool, but at the same time, I kind of feel like I don't want this show to build up to some sort of like climactic fight between the Mandalorian and Boba Fett. You know, like maybe they could do that in such a way where it'd be cool and feel exciting and like I would be invested, but right now i don't feel like i'd care that much Mm. yeah i obviously i don't know if it is boba fett or not but i would like to think that if that's what they're choosing to do it's for a really good reason and there's got to be like this real foil contrast relationship between the mandalorian who's obviously modeled on the original boba fett design like that's where that mandalorian armor comes from and who boba fett is like in in the fans minds or they're going to somehow subvert the expectation of who Boba Fett is? And would that tie in with, like, what's going on with the notion of the Mandalorians as a culture? Because there's this idea that Boba Fett is impersonating a Mandalorian by using that armor, but Mm. the Mandalorian is a Mandalorian, whether adopted in or not. But I don't know, there, there could be something interesting there if they chose to do that. Yeah, no, there could be potentially... I think I would just need them to pick that up again quite soon because I feel like Mm. now since episode three there hasn't been any more stuff about that Mandalorian culture and if we had this strong idea about oh there's these imposters claiming to know our ways but they actually corrupt our ways and like present a bad image of us to the galaxy if that had been this like evolving theme over the course of the season I could see that as like set up for like a Boba Fett related climax or some sort of confrontation but I don't feel like that's been built in yet but yeah we'll see maybe that's still to come yeah I think you know Boba Fett whether it is on him or not that aside I'm starting to like wonder how season one is going to wrap up because we obviously know Mm. that season two is coming they're already filming it I kind of had this perception that season one would stand on its own, but now I'm wondering if, like, the whole Yoda subplot is going to carry on into season two. So are we going to get much more of Herzog, the scientist, all of that stuff? Are we going to get an explanation for what they were trying to do in this season, or are they waiting for next season for that? And, like, what's going to be the cliffhanger of this season, if there is one? Yeah. It's kind of of affecting my perception of things, because it's kind of coming back to what I was saying at the beginning about this notion of an episode being filler, That's probably Mm. not a huge deal if the story arc is actually going to be broader and longer than fans are perceiving. But people are like, well, we only have eight episodes, so when are things going to get back to all of that stuff? But if that's going to be stretched out into season two, then maybe it doesn't matter so much. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see which structure it follows. Because, yeah, I feel like they need to pick up the main story again quite quickly. The main story being this whole, why do they want this creature? Like, what designs do they have on it, you know? Because that, to me, feels like the really juicy stuff. Um, So they either need to really pick that up again or introduce some really strong new threads that we can follow. Mm. Because, yeah, it's just difficult to see what they're building towards at the moment. 
I think it's really interesting, like, because we obviously knew, and the Mandalorian himself knew that people were going to be tracking him, that he would quickly become infamous because the entire guild knows what he did. He betrayed them. Yeah. But he's wearing that very distinctive armor, which is incredibly important to him as a person, but now is a huge liability. Yeah. If he got rid of the armor, a lot of his problems would be solved. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one knows what he looks like. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Because right now it's like a old um, Looney Tunes cartoon, you know, <laughs> where characters are looking at him and they just seem dollar signs. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> and yeah, you put yourself at risk, man. Like, I know you have these traditions and this is the way, etc. But is it really the way if it's going to get you killed? So And Baby Yoda, yeah. he's got to think about the baby. Yeah. So he has to stop running at a certain point and kind of face the music. Um, I yep. thought that might be this episode after episode four, but it's not. Um, yeah, may- maybe that starts to come to fruition in episode six. Yeah, so we'll see. No. I'm very curious to see what's to come. I-, I really wish we got trailers for the subsequent episode, you know, so we could sort of set expectations for what's to come. Because right now I feel like we're jumping into the void of each upcoming episode. And there's excitement in that, but there's also this tendency to think oh, we're going to get the real juicy story next. And I think then it means people can go into like a perfectly fine episode, but that ultimately just doesn't add much to the wider story and then judge it unfairly because it's not doing what they hoped it would do. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it again comes back to what we were talking about last week with like, would it have been a different, it would have definitely been a different viewing experience, would have been better or not to have the whole series in one go. Yes. Then, then if you have an episode where you feel like the plot or the characters don't develop that much, it's no big deal because then you have more and then you can judge it in context. Um, Jonah Marie on Twitter, she did put together a thread of all of the stuff from the trailer that we haven't seen so far. And I do remember seeing a shot of the armorer surrounded by stormtroopers like in her, in her setting. Um, right. So there's that idea of, if that's still going to be in the season it could have been cut but the idea of them kind of pursuing the rest of the mandalorians and them being in danger as well so i do like the idea of us coming back to the notion of what it means for the mandalorians as a community in this time period because they did they did set all that stuff up yeah so i think that would be really satisfying and for the mandalorian as a character as well yeah no i'm excited to see that so yeah that's something to look forward to Okay, cool. So should we move on to talk about resistance very quickly? Sure. I feel like it's almost going to be a similar discussion, unfortunately. Yeah, no, exactly. Although I really think that episode five of The Mandalorian was vastly superior to the Vox Vortex 5000. Oh, me too. And again, yeah. it's, it's not as big a deal for resistance because um, there, there are more episodes of that per season. There's not eight episodes. Um, but yeah. also we're all too aware that this is the final season of Resistance. So the stakes are getting quite high for the people who are invested in that show. Yes. And it does raise some interesting questions about like when they were working on this season, were they aware that it was the final one? Uh, yeah. When did they find out that that was going to be the case? Did they always know it? Like we don't know as fans. We can only speculate. So. Yeah, exactly. So this episode very briefly, it's basically the crew of the colossus they need money and they go to a casino and they basically 
have to bet lots of stuff on the outcome of a race and they put themselves in jeopardy through their own stupidity um that's a bit harsh but would you say that's kind of what happens uh yeah kind of i mean there's lots of interesting details like we get dozer and yiga off the colossus for a change <laughs> so weird it's so yeah weird. i didn't expect that i didn't expect them all to go on this side mission so that was kind of cool but yeah. it was a side mission so it kind of fits in with like you know the kind of stories that you see like finn and poe running missions on in Re- resistance reborn that sort of thing or the comics yeah um like allegiance where yes the resistance the colossus all of these side things they desperately need funds during this time so we get it there's like this necessity um but how does this fit into the larger picture of resistance as a show how is it kind of building on the themes that they've set up um is there any character development um for me it doesn't quite hit the mark yeah yeah it was just a bit disappointing so i really would have hoped that by this point in the season we'd have actually seen them rendezvous with the rest of the resistance so I think that would help the show so much because the Colossus, just as an entity in terms of the ship and everybody on it, it just feels so aimless at the moment. And I know they're doing like vague things that are connected to being associated with Resistance, like, oh, we need money. But like for the most part, I still get the vibe that that's just about sustaining themselves. It's like, oh, we don't have any food. Oh, God, we're so starving. You know, and I feel like that's been the status quo for this whole season so far and yeah it would just really make things feel so much more tangible if we saw a rendezvous with the rest of the resistance and like an assignment of duties it's like okay we need you guys to run this mission we need you guys to work in this department with this goal you know that sort of stuff would just up the stakes so much Mm. and i'm currently just questioning whether we're ever going to get to that point in this season and yeah it would be a bit of a shame if we didn't yeah, the pacing is really interesting because obviously with the season finale and then the first episode, it was like the Colossus, it's it's left Castellon, they are going to join the Resistance, but they accidentally get the wrong coordinates, so they're kind of lost. And then as far as we know, are they still trying to rectify that situation or are they kind of just drifting? Mm. Um, because Kaz is a Resistance spy and Yiga was helping him, whether in an official capacity or not. He kind of been, he'd talked to Poe Dameron and kind of accepted that responsibility and now it's just kind of a case of them surviving which is a fine story in its own right but it's very different from what they'd set up mm, yeah so yeah i just wonder by the end of season two is all of that going to come back around and it was kind of the concern that i've been having for tam's arc as well i'm less concerned about that because we got an amazing episode for her last week so i have faith they're going to come back to that for her mm. but but what happens to kaz's journey you yeah, know, it, it's become a lot smaller and personal somehow, which again is fine. It's just a different kind of story from what I'd thought they were telling. Yeah, yeah. Kaz, I think, has suffered the most in this season. So I feel like Tam has been got like in the few appearances she's had in the season, they've always done good work with her, you know, and she's always felt quite subtle and well drawn and fleshed out, which is fantastic and exactly what I want to see from that character, but. Yeah, I just feel like Kaz has been on the same basic setting, essentially. 
I think Kaz has almost been like whatever the plot demands of it for that specific mm. episode. So like, yeah. you know, he was doing his goofy, silly thing and the one where they went to the temple. And in this one, he felt a lot more um, competent with it, like listening to Niku and like championing his ideas. Um, yeah. Which earned him some scorn from characters like Freya, fairly enough, you know, like, really? That's a crackpot idea. Um, but yeah, it, it's not consistent enough. Mm. Um, and at, at the end of the day this is like a cartoon marketed towards young children so it's like yeah. you know we're 30 year old women complaining <laughs> about a show <laughs> so, well actually <laughs> in episode 18 of season 1 we saw cars <laughs> yeah no you're absolutely right like I think as like entertainment for young kids it's fine I think it's just, yeah, because we've seen this show do such great things, you know, with its characters and show surprising subtlety and depth and how it characterizes them that, yeah, I think it can just sometimes be a bit disappointed when it just feels a bit more standard, you know, but it is unfair to judge it on the same standards as adult drama because it certainly isn't and it has no pretensions towards that. Yeah. I think, like you say, it's because we've seen it be so good. We want yeah. it at that level all the time. Maybe that's just not realistic. So, Yeah. Like I say, I'm really looking forward to when season two is wrapped up and just being able to put together a view in order of all the most critical episodes of Resistance. Because I feel then you would have a really stellar animated Star Wars show. You know, if you could skip episodes like this one, basically. You yeah, know. and you know there were episodes like this in mood for season one, but it didn't matter so much because I felt like they were still in the getting to know the characters stage. So there was a lot there that was like showing us how wonderful and friendly and open Niku was a char- as a character, and how that can kind of get them into hot water, and like how Kaz related to that and kind of got over his frustration with him and realized what a great friend he could be. Um. But here, I I don't know what this serves. Because I felt like they were going to go to some really interesting territory with, um, you know, when they walk into the casino and and Hype's like bigging it up, like, oh, it's going to be so busy. It was like the, you know, the place to be when I worked here. And then it's empty. And the hurt Branky is like saying, yeah, everyone fled to Canto Bite. But then then that's not really followed upon. And I felt like that could have been a really interesting angle. Like, how has the war impacted regular people running businesses across the galaxy but then it's just kind of ended up being this throwaway thing yeah exactly it's like nice color but yeah it doesn't mean anything ultimately and yeah like i'm sure it will get better you know because i feel like in the run-up to last week's episode which was easily one of the best of the season if not the whole series like there were a few episodes so it was a bit like <laughs> treading water you know so there will be other great episodes to come you know I'm confident about that I think it's just going to be a question of going into each episode that comes with low expectations and then when it is really fabulous then yeah being impressed like, yeah. and I hate to say it but at the moment I, my feeling is that if Tam is in an episode you're pretty much guaranteed it's going to have some great stuff in it and great material because I feel like she's the character that the creative team are most invested in as well. And because, yeah, she's certainly given the most care, you know, and she's developed in the most naturalistic way. Yeah, I think, I don't know, like, we love Tam, obviously, and I agree with you that she's probably the the character that they're most invested in. But for that to really be effective, you also need to be invested in Kaz and Yiga. 
because mm. that's the dynamic right this this stuff is very personal like that's it's like yeah she bet- you know she left the first order for the first order because she felt betrayed by them so it's like a personal stake rather than just a political one like a political choice that she made because it wasn't yeah. really a political choice to be honest she wanted to be a pilot and then she felt like her friends let her down so she joined the first order it was a practical yeah. choice for her and yeah. now you can see she's starting to have those doubts because of like what Tora's mom was telling her and stuff. But it needs to loop back around to her kind of being reunited with Kaz and Yiger. And they've kind of dropped the ball on that side where they're not really talking about Tam so much anymore. Like those first yeah. couple of episodes, Kaz was really missing her. And it was clear, yeah. like, we've got to find Tam. I've got to record a message for her. And, and then it's just kind of gone away. Yeah, it's been a bit dropped, hasn't it? Hmm. So yeah, we'll see. We'll follow it with interest and hope for the best, basically. Yeah. So yes, we don't like to be a downer, you know, so we do still love this show and there's been lots of great stuff in it. But yeah, we just want it to reach its full potential, essentially, while still completely understanding and accepting that it's a show that can be watched and enjoyed by young kids, you know, which is its primary intended audience. So yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, awesome. So should we wrap things up there? Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Star Wars Nonsense on Tumblr. I'm Kirsty, and you can find me at Bastila Bay on Tumblr. And you can find us both on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye! And may the force be with you.